Welcome to the latest episode of the Busy Aviation Podcast. In this episode, I talk with Chris Taylor, whose background is in military test flying, and how he tests all different types of general aviation aircraft. There's some great stories and some really interesting information. Let's get started. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Busy Aviation Podcast. It's great to have you on the show, our first ever test pilot. Let's start by finding out a little bit more about your career in aviation. Well, hi, Chris. It's really nice to see you and uh, and chat to you at long last after emails and phone calls and business. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we I think we share a little bit of a common background in that uh, I was in the military as well. Um, I, 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 was, I was talking to somebody the other day and I was saying that um, you know, I was mad keen to be a pilot um, ever since I can remember. And I think it um, it boils down to the fact that my parents took me to a place called Aberfrau on the island of Anglesey uh, every summer when I was a, a, a toddler. And it turns out that Aberfrau is base leg for RAF Valley. And almost certainly I had yellow gnats and yellow whirlwinds turning final over my head, you know, summer yep. after summer. Uh, and there's a picture of me actually outside the... Um, the wire of valet, there were some silver chrome lightnings in the background. So I think that stowed the seed, I think, if I'm honest. Uh, that and the fact that my dad was um, a clerk to two fighter squadrons in World War II. So I didn't realise this until downloading his war record relatively recently, but uh, back then, in the 30s and 40s, RAF squadrons only consisted of pilots and one fitter, one sergeant fitter, and the Corporal Clark. All the engineering support came from the, the airfield. It didn't come from the squad, right. unlike, you know, today. So, and my dad was the clerk. He was the Corporal Clark. So he was the guy almost certainly writing the letters home uh, when pilots didn't come back. He was almost he was the guy that wrote the squadron record book. Um, he was with Treble 2 Squadron for a while, almost certainly had a nervous breakdown. And then he joined 65 Squadron, which was flying Mustang 3s and 4s. And they um, were used in the ground support role immediately after D-Day. They flew into France. Uh, they were working on all these um, short strips. Uh, they supported the Arnhem Market Garden campaign. And my dad's stories um, from that time were absolutely uh, priceless. You know, very funny, entertaining, and all his mates are pilots. You know, so he was very encouraging of my aviation interest, shall yeah. I say. Um, and, and having seen planes flying overhead, Guess what? I was reading Biggles. I was reading all those W.E. John stories. I had balsa airplanes that I built all winter and crashed all summer. I, I made the airfix models like we all did back then, you know, half a crown, pocket money, hanging from the ceiling of the bedroom in the evening. So that was that was the background. That was my kind of early years in childhood. Um, when I became a teenager, it, it was then starting to get more, a bit more real, you know, like what am I actually going to do for a living when I leave school or whatever. And um, I, I said this to somebody the other day, I know you're ex Air Force, but <laughs> I, I looked wrong with at that. BEA <laughs> and BOAC back then, predecessor to British Airways, and of course they just closed Hamble back then, so that was not an obvious route. So I was really looking at the three armed services. Uh, the Air Force did everything it could to deter me the Royal Navy did everything it could to encourage me. I mean, I mean, time after time. <laughs> I don't think that's changed, so, actually. <laughs> I, I, so here's, here's, here's the, the, the start of a 10 example. So I was 16. I was coming up to GCSEs, O-levels, as we called them back in the day. The careers officer said, 
what do you want to do, Taylor? I said, I want to be a pilot. Obviously, I want to join the Air Force, be a fighter pilot. I mean, you know, yeah. why not? Um, and he rang up the Air Force and said, I've got this guy, wants to come and visit an air station. Can you um, accommodate him? No, far too busy, can't do anything. Okay, Taylor, what next? Well, fleet air on. And um, so, to the long story short, I went down to RNAS Culgrove's in Cornwall, Helston, 10 days. As a 16-year-old, I had a free bar bill. In the <laughs> no, no questions asked about my age. Every night, I'm in the wardroom, a couple of pints of lager, because that's what I, drove back, I drank back then. Um, and the Navy flew me in everything they had. Every day I went flying. And back then, we had a lot of different types. So I was in a Sea Prince, I was in a Whirlwind, I was you know, in a Hiller, everything. All the, um, it was fantastic. And then when I was 17, I applied for a flying scholarship with the Air Force and with the Navy. Went to Biggin Hill, did all the aptitude tests, all that stuff. Um, I get called in to see the squadron leader. He says, right, Taylor, good news and bad news. Bad news is uh, the Air Force isn't going to give you a flying scholarship. Oh, that's not so good. The good news is go and see my mate next door who's in the Royal Navy. And the Navy gave me a flying scholarship. So at the age of 17, I was down at Ipswich flying Cessna 150s. Uh, Ipswich was a lovely little grass airfield before it got closed. Um, I got my PPL out of that. My parents helped with a few extra flying hours. Um, then it's like, okay, I, I'd like to go to university and uh, get an engineering degree because I was already starting to think about being a test pilot. Um, a bit pompous when I just got a PPL on Cessna fifties. If you, you might, you might think, but you know, I, there were some TV programs on at the time about test flying, and they were quite exciting. So I thought, you never know, perhaps I should do engineering. And again, I applied to the Air Force and said, you know, please can I have a cadetship? I'm now going to do this. I've now got a PPL. I've passed the aptitude tests. I'm a known quantity. And their response was, uh, yes, you can have a cadetship. Yippee, great, as an engineering officer. <laughs> and I go, well, I don't want to be an engineering officer. You know, I want to be a pilot. I've passed my aptitude tests. I've got a PPL. And said, no, 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 no. We've got lots of pilots. We need engineering officers. You're going to get an engineering degree, so be an engineer. And I said, no, thanks. He said, no, maybe a navigator. I said, no, sorry. Ah, they they, they try that on everyone. <laughs> so, so I know. So I, I turned the Air Force down, went went to university. I then went to the, the University Air Squadron. Because I hadn't yet joined the Navy. I gave them one last chance. And I said, look, this is me, desperate to be a, a pilot. Da -da 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 -da. And um, they said, have you, I think you've considered the Royal Navy, haven't you? And I said, well, I, yeah, absolutely. I've considered everything. Little did I realize what rivalry there was <laughs> between the, dare I say, the senior and junior yeah. service. I, I, I shot myself in both feet by even hinting that I'd uh, shown some interest in the Navy. Yeah, so that was the background as to, long story short, but I ended up joining the Navy on a cadetship. Uh, they paid me through uh, the last two years at university. The, the downside of that was, as, a, as an aviator, was that the... The Navy's cadetships were for career officers, GL, full career commission, if we remember it right. So I was signing on for 16 years, and um, I had to be a ship driver first. That was, okay. That's the Navy view. It's a bit like the Army. Yeah. You know, they, a lot of their pilots came from the Royal Artillery. Still do, Navy. yeah. So back then, you, you had to join the Navy. If you, want, if you wanted to be a career officer, you joined to drive ships, and then you subspecialized as a pilot. So that's what I did, which delayed me actually starting my flying training by a good couple of years. Um, 
which you know pros and cons. Yeah. But 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 I ran a car at university, <laughs> you know. I managed to eat, which is probably I wouldn't have been able to do had I not. So anyway, that's how I got into flying. I got my navy wings um, a little while after that, and uh, back in nineteen eighty. That's, that's really interesting, really and and years. and the way the routes into. The military, I mean, have changed so much. I'm a little bit up close and personal with this as my youngest son is going through it at the moment. And uh, you've, got to, you've got to feel sorry for them because, you know, you right. gave that example how you were taken to cold droves for 10 days and looked after. And, and of course, the, the opportunities are just not there for that anymore. You know, it's all outsourced. Uh, you know, your fitness right. test is done right. by a private company. Your medical is done by a private company. And, and you have very little engagement with the services right, before you right. get in. And that's even if you can get an application in, for example, at the moment, the Air Force is not recruiting at all because the training system is, is just absolutely chock-a-block, clogged up because um, we could wait for various yeah, reasons, yeah, yeah. but another yeah. whole podcast worth. But yeah, and, it's, and it's, it's such a shame when you hear a story like yourself, you know, that, you know, that such an interesting route into the military and that start is just not there anymore. Uh, but still fascinating and, and, and amusing. Right. <laughs> I don't know if the barbell. I don't. I, I mean, these days, you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine giving a sixteen-year-old a barbell in a wardroom? Uh, it's... <laughs> it, it, it was amazing, absolutely. And, and, and yeah. we were we were treated well. You know, I mean, we had we had a few of the midshipmen um, sort of you know stitched up probably but they yeah. they were only sort of 18 19 so it was you know reasonably close to our ages yeah and they were told to sort of look after us and socialize with us so you know it was well, quite well, quite a fun yeah. 10 days and it concluded with the the air show that was um yep. usually held in Kildrose in july and that was when our royal was was yeah. still just about hanging in there um so it was an amazing yeah. air show that the cloud base was 100 feet um and and so we thought you know I mean, this is this is the fleet air on for you. We thought we're not going yeah. to see the jets. Little did we know. I mean, the Buccaneer air display with yeah. a hundred foot cloud base was phenomenal. And as it rolled, almost scraping its wingtip, it opened its bomb doors, and it said, uh, "And you'll see the words fly navy was a commentary." But what we saw was fixed wing lifts in bold letters in the bomb bay as it as it literally scraped down the tarmac yeah, on its. its uh, I'm, I'm, side. Luckily, a, a friend of mine was a buccaneer right. pilot, and just before I left the air force, uh, he'd become a tornado pilot. Was he? All the buccaneers had gone, uh, but of course, very right. very used to uh, flying at fifty feet over the sea and lower. Uh, so I was I was very lucky that I, I yeah, got uh, yeah. I got the back seat of a tornado as my last trip in the air force and uh, he de- he demonstrated to me uh, how oh, they wow. used Good. to fly the Buccaneer with a tornado and yeah I was I, even as a helicopter right. pilot who's used to being next to the sea I was seriously impressed <laughs> yeah so so now you're yes. in the navy <laughs> and uh, 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 what did what was the first well yeah. there was training of course what was the first operational type you got to fly. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I I was very lucky. I mean, the type that I wanted to fly, um, right from investigating the fleet air arm in those early days, was the Wasp. That's that's the, the helicopter I wanted to fly. Um, and I was I was lucky enough. One of my, one of my bits of naval training was on a tribal class frigate that was equipped with a Wasp. So I got a chance to meet the pilot and and see what he did. Um, the Wasp was one of those incredible multi-role aircraft. You know, there was nothing the Wasp didn't try and turn its hand to, basically. And the good thing as well was it was a single pilot helicopter. So whereas uh, when I 
got my wings and came off the um, uh, the training at Cold Rose, uh, my mates basically went either to fly the Sea King, a couple went to the Wessex, then I went to the Wasp. So yeah. immediately I was flying on my own, you know, and I was treated as a grown up. Um, and very quickly, I did, I, we, I did a sort of little bit of a session understudying another pilot, um, but within months I was let loose on my own. And then you are the pilot on the ship. You are, and, and, and that means you are the warfare officer who's knowledgeable about aviation. Uh, quite often you have the most capable weapon systems on the ship, ironically. Um, so you were sort of integrated part of the, of the warfare team. Um, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and you got the mail. And you took people ashore, you know, when they wanted to, to go ashore. And if somebody wasn't well, you flew them to the hospital. And if somebody fell in the, the sea, you picked them out of the sea, as well as flying around with torpedoes and depth charges and missiles and, and all that good stuff. Um, and and the, the, the WASP was um, already very old. I mean, I, by the time I joined the, the WASP squadron, um, everything was, you know, it was mm -hmm. in its demise as a, as a type. Um, but there was good news and bad news to that. I mean, that meant there were very few um, ab initio WASP pilots that followed me. There were only two other WASP pilots that followed me into that, um, that particular clan, if you like. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a challenging aircraft. So it was, a, it was a very good tool for learning the trade of being an operational helicopter pilot. Um, it didn't have an awful lot of power. It was incredibly limited on uh, range and endurance. Um, it, it was, you know, almost always close to being over-talked. You know, you're always pulling all the power the aircraft had just to do anything. Um, <laughs> to give you, one, give you one example of that. Um, yes, I have. Have you read yes. the book Chicken yeah. Hawk? Probably you have as a helicopter pilot. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, 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 was, I was fueling. Uh, I, my, my ship was based in Versailles. Uh, the, he the helicopter was based in Portland. So we, we would disembark and end up in Portland. One, one uh, Sunday I had to embark on my ship. So I'm flying through all those RAF airfields that were still open back then. And that thankfully <laughs> the, the, I had an insurance of one hour, so I had a range of 90 miles. Right? So I could, and thankfully there was just an air force station every 90 miles. No. I mean, I mean there, there isn't now. And I flew, in, I flew into one of them. I, I can't remember which, which one it was now. And um, they said, oh, the airfield's closed. But I said, I've booked fuel on the radio. They said, OK, that's fine. You can land in the fueling uh, depot itself. So I landed in there and topped up with fuel. And the fueling depot was surrounded by this 20-foot high chain I know fence. what's coming next. And it was wire fence. <laughs> and I'd, I'd, yeah, well, I'd gone from being, you know, at about 4,800 pounds weight to being 5,500 pounds weight. My performance had gone from... I had some, so I had none, and I couldn't get over the fence. <laughs> I mean, <you> know, <laughs> how embarrassing that! It's a Sunday afternoon. I'm sitting there in the hover. Every time I pull power to try and get out of the of the of the compound, I haven't got enough power to get out. So, in the end, it was one of those chicken hawk things where I sort of reversed into the corner, accelerated across the diagonal, used all that extra lift that you and I know we get from translational lift, and then just Brilliant. about hopped over the um, fence at the far end. <laughs> And carried on to recite, you know. So that was the wasp. It was a brilliant. Uh, it was a very yeah. steep learning curve. I, 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 I just remember the wasp when 
at the end of the Falklands. Uh, at the time, my father had a, a boat on the Medway, and I, uh, I can't remember which ship it was. It was it was one of, I think it was one of the survey vessels that had been down there. Uh, or the, the, was it Endurance? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Heckler or Hyde. Yeah, or I remember it coming back or, up or the Medway, and, yeah. and I th- I've still got photographs now. You know, proper not digital photographs, but prints of about four wasps. Yeah. I think on either you know on either side of it, leading it back up. And of course, right. there was lots of a flotilla of small boats around. Uh, yeah, yeah, quite quite something because it's yeah, got yeah. it's it's four wheels, isn't it? The wasp is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's four wheels. Yeah, yeah. And you and and you you could pivot them um, on on board the on board the ship. You would pivot them at forty five degrees, <laughs> so you could spot turn on the deck. You could you could rotate the helicopter using the tail rotor on the deck, so you could and, take and off and into it. Wind. It, it sounds like you needed to take off into wind as well. <laughs> Oh, you you needed all the wind just, you could get to quite, get able. It's quite something, yeah, yeah. And so, what did that lead to? So that you were talking about that as the demise. You know, it was on its way out. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I, I flew the wasp for three years. Um, over a thousand deck landings in the wasp, about 800, uh, 900 flying hours. But unfortunately, the the wasp went to scrap. I mean, that it, the the wasp. Um, you know, was at the end of its operational life, really. Uh, the, the obvious um, successor for me to, to move on to was the Lynx helicopter, which was um, a, a joint Westland Aerospatial project. Um, and it was it was like the Wasp on steroids in, in many respects. Uh, you know, it was twin engine. Um, it had a much better payload, much better endurance, could fly much faster. Um, its weapon systems were much more capable. It still had the same torpedoes, but it now had a sea skewer missile, which was actually an incredibly useful missile um, for, for its period, for its timing. Um, and it had a radar. It, it had a, it had a. It was only a one eighty degree scanning radar, but it was a very good radar. I mean, you, you were able to pick up sort of periscopes from submarines um, and things like that with it. So. Um, that was useful operationally, but also incredibly yes. useful finding the ship. One of the, one of the biggest challenges in the Wasp was you'd get airborne, you'd got an hour's worth of gas if you were lucky. Yeah. The ship suddenly went off in the wrong direction. You go back. Well, we to always know. We always know. Yeah, and it was Royal well, Navy ships and, are never where they say they are. That, that, that's, that's, that's the that's the law. Never where they say they are. So you know. In the Wasp, yeah, that led imagine. to a lot of very scary moments. Uh, you know, trying to find the ship. Literally running on, on on fumes, as it were. The links when we when we turn up and the ship wasn't there, at least we could put the radar on and go right. Well, there's a ship there. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's not. And we could, you know, we could we could eventually find our own mother yeah. who'd gone off in the wrong direction invariably. So, uh, but yeah, links is great fun. And and um, you know, as helicopters go, um, it had a semi-rigid rotor head, so it was effectively an aerobatic helicopter. The army, uh, as we know, used to turn them upside down for air displays um, and it had a very good undercarriage so if you were going to you know I've said this to a lot of people if you're going to land on the yeah. back of a ship be in a Lynx there's no doubt in my mind the Lynx and possibly the Wildcat as a successor is the most capable ship operator did it have harpoon in that, those days or? yeah 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 it did it did have harpoon yeah yeah um, of course the Wasp didn't we just had <laughs> yes. guys that ran out with nylon lashings and uh, <laughs> tried to I mean, to give you an example of when I was training uh, to fly the wasp, I was trained to fly the wasp. I ditched in the, in, in, the, in the first day, 
So I lost the second day because they had to find me another helicopter. Then I went out on the third day. Then they changed ship on me. and We went to a tribal class frigate. Um, I'm doing my emergency trip at night. I landed on this tribal class frigate. The ship rolled. And the only thing that stopped me sliding over the side was the yeah. wooden beading around the side of the deck. That was literally the only thing that stopped me rolling over the side. The Lynx had this harpoon, which was like a latch. You could fire it down onto a grid. Um, and it would hold you on the deck temporarily whilst the blokes came out with their yeah. lashings and, uh, and tied it down properly. So, yeah, yeah it's very capable. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a crab, as an RAF pilot, uh, fortunately flying the Sea King, I did, I did a fair few landings on the back of Royal Navy ships, uh, which is, you know, it was quite exciting, actually. Uh, and down in the Falklands, being SAR guys, we well until until the infamous Chinook incident on ocean, where someone, an RAF pilot, managed to clatter into the back of it. We we just used to pitch up and do it. You know, we'd read the book and and uh, and go and do it. And it was quite yeah. good fun. Which and and as you say, you you get on deck. Uh, there's no harpoon on the Sea King, so you just wait for the the guys to run in with the lashings. Uh, I, when I left the Air Force, I went to fly yeah. the Bolko 105 doing lighthouse support on skids on metal decks with no nets. Uh, right. and, and I thought I'd seen some yeah. interesting times in the Sea King on the back of frigates. Uh, nothing compared to what, <laughs> what, what what happened on a Bolko with metal to metal. <laughs> but that's, a, that's, that's, for another, that's for another time. But, uh, <laughs> but and, and, and we didn't use to tie it down unless you, were, unless you were getting out of it to leave it for the night. Um, which which was yeah really very interesting. Right. But there you go. Yeah no. So the links. Yeah, and, I, and I've never I've never flown the links. Um, so it's it sounds really interesting. Also, still right. still the fastest helicopter in the world. Yeah, it still holds the airspeed record. Um, yes, it, it, it clocked at four hundred kilometers an hour in a in a modified yeah. version of it. It was a sort of modified Air Force Army version with skids, and and they. Managed to get some extra thrust out the the, the engines and things like that. Um, yeah. So, yes, so was technically, that, was that, it is. I, I, I can't remember you said. Did how long did you stay in the navy for, Chris? Was that was this towards the? Oh, there you go. Oh, so there's, there's more. There's more years. to come. So um, yeah, long time. <laughs> was it for the <laughs> links and then moved on to test pilot flying, or was that was there something in between? Yeah. Well. Uh, yes. I guess. I mean. I. I. Uh, so. Yeah, I did sort of. I, I was on three separate flights in the Wasp. Um, I was on a, a Lynx, a Lynx flight um, for a couple of years. Went down to Falklands. Did all sorts of uh, interesting stuff. Um, I wanted to become an instructor, so I um, managed to go onto the um, qualified helicopter instructor course at RAF Shawbury. Um, did that, and then went back to teaching on the Lynx. Um, taught on the Lynx for a couple of years, and. By then, and this, this, this might sound, you know, I mean, we obviously share that sort of uh, overlap of helicopters. I, I'd done everything okay. I could legally do in a helicopter yeah. and, and more, and more. <laughs> you know, I, I had, uh, I'd flown them every which way in all sorts of weathers, all sorts of conditions. And clearly, I, I, I think as, as time's gone on, I realise I've got a low attention span. Well, you're I, a pilot. You know, I, I get bored. Eventually, I get bored. I'm a pilot. I get bored, you know. Uh, I've done that, yeah. seen that, got the T-shirt. What's next? You know, what's the next challenge? And so the 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 initial thing was the initial sort of idea was, uh, you know, I was I was a frustrated fixed wing pilot. Obviously, I'd got a PPL. I'd flown aeroplanes. I'd flown bulldogs as part of my training. You know, what about the Sea Harrier? Looked at 
Sea Harrier was doing, there just weren't any vacancies back then. I mean, the Sea Harrier fleet was very small. Um, they had a lot of ex-Phantom um, uh, pilots, Buccaneer pilots still. They're taking very few ab initio pilots. Uh, we did have a Navy course called the Smack 309, is where you, when you went to Yeovilton and flew the Hunter. And with hindsight, I wish I'd done it just to fly mm. the Hunter for 30 hours, you know, even if there hadn't been a Harrier slot at the end of it. Um, but I looked at the job and everything else, and I thought, hmm, not sure. Meanwhile, ironically, one of my chums on uh, the Wings Training Squadron had been in touch with the Royal Air Force. Again. Of course. So the Air Force keeps <laughs> popping up. Um, and um, it turns out the Royal Air Force had a, a, a specific office in Whitehall <laughs> to steal pilots from other people. I mean, it was, I it was it, absolutely... I think they called it poaching. Just exactly what it was. stealing. <laughs> poaching, yeah. Poach, poaching sounds a bit better than stealing, doesn't it? But that's exactly what it was. So they had... They, this guy was there. I spoke to him lots. You know, he was trying to get people from Australia, New Zealand, the other sort of, you know, Western countries. And he was also poaching them from the other armed services. And one of my colleagues had done a lot of, bit, a lot of the groundwork. And back then, it turns out, the Air Force was short of QFIs, flying instructors. Um, as qualified helicopter instructors, we could be fast-tracked on the on the uh, QFI course, the flying instructor course for airplanes, and so it was a case of right, come to us, you know, you'll get an Air Force commission. We'll send you to Cranwell, four week course at Cranwell. Learn you, learn you to teach, you know, to march properly, salute properly in the Air Force manner. Then we'll send. Then, then we're going to send me on a fast jet refresher course, flying jet provost around Yorkshire mm-hmm. for thirty hours. That sounded a lot of fun. Then I was going to, do, to learn how to fly the Tucano. Then I was going to do the QFI course. Then I was going to be a QFI on the Hawk. Yeah. And then, who knows? You know, it was going to be then all, all the options were open. And uh, the four of us set off to do it. Um, and the other three guys went through. Sadly for me, my wife was um, taken seriously up just at that time. It mm. was, it, life is like that, isn't it? And I just spent a huge amount of energy and effort sort of getting this all sorted out. And uh, we actually went to see my wife's consultant, and I said to the to the guy, "Look, uh, I'm just about to join the Air Force, and I'm going to be four weeks in Lincolnshire, you know, another six weeks in Yorkshire, then I'm going to go down here and over there, and so on and so forth." And he said, "No, you're not." Right. I mean, he just he just laughed. At me. He just said, "No, you know, your wife needs to be, you know, within a 30 mile radius of this hospital, and you're not going anywhere." Okay, fine. And and again, I have to say, to the Royal Navy, bless their cotton socks. All the way through this process, even though I'd handed in my 18 months notice, um, I'd you know, done the PVR thing, so I'd really kind of you know, reneged on my contract with the Navy. Um, the guys in London kept ringing me up every week and saying, have you changed your mind yet? Have you changed your mind yet? And, and it, I got within a week of leaving the Navy and joining the Air Force, and this guy rang me again. <laughs> and I said, do you know what? As, as as chance would have it, yeah. something has cropped up, and I would love to stay in the Royal Navy on condition that you give me this specific job. And by then, I I'd worked out that you know I, I couldn't join the Air Force. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, way back when having just got my PPL, I'd already started to get interested in being a test pilot. And the thing that had put me off was a program I saw. Uh, in the 80s, with, which featured a lot of the guys that became my colleagues, who all seemed to be having a really tough yeah, time. Yeah, I, th- I think know, I've got the book on my bookshelf. I'm looking over here. I think I've got and the I book thought, on my... Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called Test Pilot. Yeah. It's, 
it's, it's, it's, it's called Test Pilot, which is another reason why I didn't want to call my yeah. book Test Pilot, because yeah. that book is on my shelf as well. And it, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 and it, if you read the book and if you saw the program, you think, gosh, they're all working yeah. to midnight. I, I, I can't do that. You know, I'm up there. I'm not good enough to do that. Um, but what I said to the Navy was, okay, what I'd really like to do is be the officer commanding the link simulator. So uh, we had a, um, a simulator at Portland. We had three simulators teaching links crews. Um, and it was it actually worked very well. I, I ran the simulator. Um, actually, I, it, I, was, I was reflecting on it recently. When, when I got there, morale was low. Everyone was cheesed off. Uh, two or three years later, we were you know, highly respected. We were, we were training everybody in the links world. We were flying on all three squadrons, instructing all three squadrons. So I didn't stop flying. And the good news was I could I could manage my time better. So it, it, the simulator ran sort of 12, 15 hours a day. So I was trying to, I was trying to do a lot of babysitting for our young children at the time because my wife was still ill. So I could say, right, you know, I'll, I'll drop the kids off, get get into the simulator, then I can pop home, pick them up, then I can do a late shift. And I did all that, a lot of night flying as well. Uh, and the other good news with that was I got to know my, my own aircraft, the Lynx, incredibly well. Um, and also I could use some of the time to, to prepare for the examinations to be a test pilot. Um, so, uh, and I did lots of other stuff. In fact, um, I went to America, I did some uh, stuff out there. I learned to fly some different helicopters out there. I went and visited, went and visited NASA. I mean, I rang up NASA and said, please, can I come and visit? And I spent a day Amazing. in Houston with the head of their training head of astronaut training, hosted me for a day. I flew the space shuttle simulator. Um, amazing. I mean, and it's just like Chris Taylor from, you know, some, somewhere in the Royal I, was just, I don't think they knew who I was. I was used to put so NASA on my, uh, what you call it, draft and posting. You used to have to have a choice of three, po you know, three posts, well, we would call it, you know, and I, oh, yeah. I, I, right. at the time I desperately wanted to go fixed wing, uh, well, back to fixed wing. And, uh, uh, and, but I was the right. third one. I always used to put NASA. I just used to put NASA. I didn't put anything on it, you know, and because uh, I, right. I, I couldn't really think of anything else. And I thought, one, <laughs> one day you never know, you know. Why not? <laughs> well, you never, yeah, you never know. Uh, anyway, yes, yeah, so, 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 you know, and then I um, formally applied, uh, went for the interviews. I mean, getting into ETPS, uh, particularly in the Navy, was very difficult. There was only one slot every year. Um, and there was a lot of competition. Uh, and in the end, the competition was whittled down to a short list of two of us. Um, the, the other guy had flown fixed wing, he'd flown some jet time. And I mm. thought, you know, I'm really up against it. He's, he's bound to be chosen over me. Um, but for reasons various, I, I was in position and, and offered the slot. And so, so um, this is now yeah. ETPS. So this is, I, I think, one of the things that, you know, yeah. obviously from the flavour of it, which we'll come to in a moment, your book, um, you started flying fixed wing as well. So you, you're testing, testing fixed wing aircraft as well, as well as helicopters. How, how is that transition? How is that done in, in ETPS? Yeah. Because as you said, you, you didn't have jet time or they, I think you're going to say they put you in it and send you off. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, I mean, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest. One of the big disappointments in my, well, getting to ETPS was just great. You know, it was, it, it was great. And ETPS, um, and in fairness, the other test pilot schools around the world, I mean, it is just a fantastic experience. And I, I get phoned up every now and again by people that want to be test pilots, but the, the cost of these courses, mm. you know, is just eye-watering. So, you know, the average 
guy who's sitting there right now flying a C-42 Icarus thinking he'll want to be a test pilot, it, you know, he's on such a, a steep trajectory to get close to it. Right? Mm. it, it but the military send people there. So that, that was, that was you know, a good start. But the course itself is incredibly hard work. And the course, I hadn't realised it until I started, but it is very distinctly split okay. between rotary and fixed wing. There is a, a really big divide. Uh, you literally have a handful of um, lessons during ground school before, apart from social events, you rarely mix and mingle with your fellow students from the other side of the, the house at all. So I, I, I got a, um, a go in a Hawk. I got a go in a, uh, what else did I fly? And a couple of other things, BUC 111. But really, I graduated after that year um, uh, and I did well. I mean, I got the... Um, the, the prize for the best helicopter pilot on the course which is great and uh, but but really my my fixed wing um credibility okay. experience and not growing to you know it, it, but I, but i had become a helicopter no. pilot, which you know is no bad thing i mean that was quite a, a a good good start but but the job i had wanted to get and the reason i uh, specifically targeted this year to do the training was that um once every three years there was one place to join uh, what was called experimental flying squadron. So, so back in those days, RE Bedford and RE Farnborough were two big uh, MOD airfields that did all our research and development flying. So all the flying bedstead stuff was done at Bedford. A lot of the um, sort of um, um, night vision goggle research, the uh, infrared camera research was all done at Farnborough. So I, jo I joined a squadron which, um, as it happened, was... was just moved to Boscombe Down as I joined it. So Bedford closed, farm was semi-closed, and the aircraft fleet um, all came to Boscombe Down. And we had a dozen test pilots, actually maybe only about eight or nine of us sometimes, flying a whole bunch of different aircraft. So to give you an idea, we had the Wessex. I was the project pilot for the Wessex. We had a couple of Sea Kings. Um, we had a couple of Lynx. So that was the helicopter fleet. Uh, we also had access to the Scout and the Gazelle and bits and pieces. But we had several Hunters, we had a couple of Jaguars, we had uh, Andover's HS 748s, we had BAC 111s. Hmm. And we didn't have enough pilots. So every, everybody's co-pilot was somebody okay. from another discipline. So when I flew the Sea King, and, and as you know with the Sea King, yeah. you always needed somebody to work the throttles in the emergency, it was usually a Phantom pilot yeah. sitting in the other seat. Uh, who loved it because I let him do all the flying. How cool I just sat there and took notes <laughs> and uh, and took did all the admin, and, yeah. and the F4 guy flew me around. Uh, <laughs> I nearly crashed my fair so That's another story, but you know, uh, that, but you know, uh, it was that was a lot of fun. Or I'd be flying the Andover, or I'd be flying with my fixed wing mate in the Jaguar, or uh, whatever. Uh, a massive amount of fun. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, the other thing I did whilst I was there, I mean, I think you you, you were you mentioned just before we sort of went live that you oh, had a tornado, tornado yeah oh, yeah because um, yeah, they, they crashed oh, the airport crashed sorry, all the two of, seat one of my, didn't um, they? so there was none left yeah they used to use a hunter they used to use a hunter, oh, oh, okay. use a hunter with a with a which i also very luckily yes. i yeah. held on a buccaneer squadron at one stage for about six months and i got i don't know probably must be 20 or 30 hours of hunter flying uh because because they used to go and do their um right. SC, their staff right. continuation training because you couldn't do it in the Buccaneer, they used to do it in the Hunter, and in the right-hand seat of the Hunter, yeah. it had a Buccaneer cockpit. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I've flown, yeah. I've flown with that Hunter. <laughs> I've flown one of those Hunters at Exeter. 
exactly yeah. the T8 Hunter, Buccaneers yeah, Ford yeah, exactly. I mean, it was an incredible cockpit. I must admit, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. the glimpse of what I'd missed, really. Um, but yeah, this mate of mine, he was um, flying the Hawks. Um, the Hawk was used until relatively recently to support the naval um, ship workup um, exercises. So Hawks would pretend to be either Hawks and jets or they'd pretend to be missiles launched off things. So again, it was, you know, come and fly a hawk and we'll beat ships up at, you know, 30 feet over the sea at 400 knots. So guess what? I found a bit of spare time to do that every now and again. Because oh. <laughs> so, I had all the gear, I was ejection seat trained, I had all the, um, you know, the G trousers and stuff like that. So so I, during that two years, I, I built up a reasonable amount of experience on yeah. how the other half lips. I mean, I got a lot of different fixed wing experience. Then um, the... The, the Navy guy, the appointer, I mean, this is all a very long story. In my second book, I explained the story about how all the jobs fall out. But uh, at one point, the Navy wanted to stop me being a test pilot and send me off to do something else. But uh, at the end of the two years, they said, actually, we, we're short of a, a tutor back at ETPS. Um, and uh, I, I, had, I had a mate who was also in the Navy. There were two jobs. One was at Patuxent River, one was at Boston Down. Um, we flipped the coin and actually what we did was talk to our wives <laughs> because it was it was really our wives who decided and actually my wife uh, wanted to stay in the UK his wife wanted to go to the States so that, was, that worked out really well and I and I joined Boscombe Down ETPS again as, a, as an instructor now and I have to say in that first year that first year was incredibly um, uh, challenging I had my first May Day flame out in a hawk at 41,000 feet crashed the scout helicopter um, <laughs> through complete incompetence. Um, I learned how to fly the BAC 111 as a proper pilot. Um, I qualified uh, flying the Bassett, but my first ever landing was only on one engine because it, it, that engine failed. So it was an incredible year. But also during that year, I had to relearn all the stuff I thought okay. I'd learn, uh, learned as a student. And yeah. it, it turns out I hadn't really learned a great deal. You know, it's like, the medics yeah. have this sort of see one, do one, teach one thing. Uh, and, and certainly it's the teaching of a, yeah. a topic, isn't it, that makes it really um, come home. So I did that for a while. I did, I did um, uh, actually four years of teaching helicopter pilots um, and helicopter flight test engineers how to do flight tests. Uh, that was you know, a lot of fun. Then at the end of that period, yet again, I was bombing on what to do. The Navy at that point had run out of steam on the um, yeah. the ladder of trying to encourage me to stay in. And they were going to send me back to the Lynx simulator, would you believe, after after four years, well, seven years as a test pilot at that point. So I said, no thanks, left the Navy and was recruited by ETPS to run all their short course training. And as a result of that, the, the, the boss of the squadron then, very entrepreneurial guy, said, and you will need to teach fixing. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just you. You are the test pilot teaching flight tests. Uh, and you need to design courses and so on and so forth. So in my first year in that job, um, I was sent off to 45 Squadron, um, which is the multi-engine training squadron, as you'll remember. Learned how to fly the jet stream, um, which, which was good fun. Um, and then on the strength of that, qualified on the jet stream aircraft, which Cranfield University operated. So I became a pilot for that airplane. Uh, and we were going to use that extensively to do some short course stuff. In the end, it sort of petered out. Um, but um, 
as a result of that, then obviously that kind of, you know, that was my first stepping stone to, to be able to say to my military colleagues, do you know what, yeah. I, am a, I am an aeroplane pilot now, and I've come out of 45 Squadron yep. as a qualified Air Force multi-engine pilot. No. You know, you can't, you can't not be that. You know, they don't let you leave without having done, done all the check rides and proved you can do it. Um, and I learned how to teach flight, fixed wing flight tests. We used a Bassett aeroplane, which had a variable stability system. So I was teaching, I was teaching F-16 and Harrier pilots how to do fixed wing flight tests within a few weeks. I was teaching multi-engine guys how to do VMCG, VMCA testing. Um, and I did three years of that. So, so I went from you know, being a helicopter pilot to being a helicopter test pilot to then being a, a, a tutor for helicopters and then being a tutor for aeroplanes. And then the final kind of stepping stone was after three years, I got very frustrated with the situation I was in for a variety of reasons. And the CEA wanted a fixed wing test pilot. Yeah. And I applied and I got the job. So all of a sudden, I was now a fixed wing test pilot. Uh, and I said, can I do some helicopter flying? Um, and they said, no, don't do any helicopter flying. Not, not right now. We want you to be an airplane test pilot. Unbeknownst to me, the, my boss uh, at the interview um, noted exactly what I'd said. As soon as the interview was complete, he went rushing around the whole building <laughs> saying, this is why I won't get one free. He wants to do helicopters as well as airplanes. And it, and it wasn't that yeah. long before I found myself doing both. Blimey. But that's how uh, I became uh, a fixed It really is some story, and it's fascinating as well. And you've had, I mean, it, it, it's some <laughs> career. It really is. Uh, and, and, and I know, I don't want to give too much away, because obviously a lot of this, is this in, in the first book, second book? Um, yeah, so I've, ri- I've, written, uh, I've written a book. Um, I've, well, I've actually written two books. Um, the first book uh, was published... Um, only about four or five weeks ago, um, and and I've written a second book, which is at the publishers waiting their approval. So what I did was, um, for a bunch of reasons, um, I, it, it just crossed my mind that I'd reached an age. I, I turned sixty um, a few years ago, four years ago, and when 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 my dad right. turned sixty, he had a stroke. So all yeah. those fantastic stories he had, you know, I mean, I mean, he his is one of his best stories um he says to his mates on 65 squadron brussels is being liberated let's go in and get pissed they all pile into a jeep about six of them on a jeep they go into brussels have a slap up meal get completely shit-faced because they were going to die the following day as they're driving out of brussels there's blokes with gray uniforms standing on the street corners yeah. and they're going what the hell is it? <laughs> it turns out brussels wasn't liberated the, the germans <laughs> the Germans oh still God. held Brussels, <laughs> and like like all these things in war, I think all these uh, yeah. these German soldiers were so staggered to see a bunch of completely pissed blokes, you know, whistling past at sixty miles an hour in a jeep. Oh, they didn't have time to uh, to shoot them. You know, amazing. Yeah. Uh, and he had he had loads of stories like that. But he but he had a stroke uh, when he was sixty. All of those stories got lost to us as children. Um, and I thought, you know what? You know, I've got four four grandkids. Um, you know, uh, yeah. and I never know what's around the corner. None of us do, I guess. So I thought, do you know what? I ought to write some stuff down. And um, during lockdown, I thought, you know, if you know, my 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 job was a little bit quieter. So I thought, if I can't find the time yeah. to do it now, perhaps I never will. Um, and I and I like uh, probably a lot of people. I took I took advice from people who have written books, um, and they said, well, you know, you just got to try. You know, if you're going to write a book. 
we, we can't tell you how to write a book. We don't know what your style is going to be like, yeah. you know, whether you can string two words together or not, whatever. So I just started bashing away on the keyboard. Um, I, I got a whole bunch of you know, pilot books on my shelf, some of which are incredibly <laughs> boring. Uh, the, the books I use just templates of Billy Connolly's autobiography Sounds good. and Peter Kay's autobiography. <laughs> so that gives, you a, that gives you an idea of uh, a kind of style template. And I got their books and they'd written about 100,000 words. I thought, let's see if I just write some stories down, what they look like. Um, and I, I read a book um, a couple of years ago by Emily Maitlis, who's the BBC Newsnight presenter. She, she's written a book called Airhead. And apparently, the story is, uh, I, I talked to her publisher, she didn't want to write the book, she was pressurised into it, so you know, I really don't want to do this. And she just wrote stories yeah. about interviews. So her book has... Um, a name at the top of the title invariably, Prince Andrew is her last chapter, and she tells you all about the background to the interview and a lot of the stuff that went on. And I thought, I can do that. I don't have to do it chronologically. It's yeah. just like me and you having this conversation. You know, ideally in a pub, by a fire, with a beer, and you go, when I was flying the Wessex, I go, oh, I flew the Wessex. And when I was flying the Sea King, you know, and next thing you know, you know, two hours has gone past, yeah. and three pints has Conversa gone. Conversational. Uh, you know, yeah, conversational so writing style is, is more engaging. Conversational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? Yeah. I, I, well, for pilots, it is. I mean, I, I was reading a review by somebody today on on Amazon, and they they clearly, I mean, they've they've done about six hundred views on Amazon. Their average rating is two and a half stars, and oh. I got two stars from okay. her. You know, but she's yeah. not a pilot. She doesn't get yeah. it. She didn't get the the format at all. Um, but my book, it's 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 written. Uh, every chapter is standalone. <laughs> you can leave it in the loo. You can have it by your bedside. You know, you won't. It doesn't matter if you forget what happened in chapter one by the time you get to chapter nineteen. Yes, yeah. they will. They all remind awesome. what, you. Chris, what's sorry? I missed what. What's it actually and called? I, um, no. Just test pilot. Yeah, oh, it's called test pilot, and then the subtitle is an extraordinary Perfect. career okay. testing civil aircraft. So yeah. So test pilot is the big title. Um, the publishers were very keen to call it that. As, as I've mentioned earlier, there are some other very impressive test pilots out there that have written books called Test Pilot. And I, I wouldn't really want to put myself in their uh, yes. domain or whatever, but but uh, th there is some sense in calling yeah. Test Pilot because guess what? That's what I Brilliant. am. That's what I've been doing. For I think years, well, we so. can revisit that in, uh, um, towards the end. Um, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the questions were, you know, I want to ask you is, what is the most difficult aircraft? One, well, one you may have flown or two tested or both? S61 load and the way the Americans did load lifting was um, you basically had a bubble window fitted to the left hand seat you sat in the left hand seat rather than the usual right hand seat mainly so that you could put your head in the bubble window you had a hundred foot plus long strop and you had no air crewman you had no ground crew you basically just flew your S61 vertically over this yeah. load there was, there was an amateur bloke there that hooked it up <laughs> And then you flew it around and, and dropped it off. There was no assistance. So you, 
So whilst the S61 is a stable aircraft, you know, reasonably easy to fly, lifting a load off a hundred foot strop that's that weighs more than the helicopter, phenomenally difficult. You know, incredibly difficult to do it um, without embarrassment. Yeah. So that's one example of you know it, the, the airplane itself was okay, give or take. The task that it was being asked to do was, was challenging. Um, I flew an awful lot, and I still do. I test autogyros. Um, and one of the reasons I got asked to test autogyros for the CEA was their, their accident rate back then when I joined uh, per flying hour was phenomenal. It was about 10 times the equivalent accident rate for almost every other type. So there's a bit of graph paper, you know, one line's right at the top of the graph paper, and the other, line, other lines are all down the bottom. And it's be, they, just, they were just falling out of the sky, right, left and centre. So I, I learned how to fly gyros. I then went testing autogyros. And, and the most... Um, um, what's the word? The, the, the gyro that was killing most people was something called the RAF 2000. Mm -hmm. Now, the, some of your listeners may uh, have flown the RAF 2000, um, and I and I flew with a good number of owners of RAF 2000s and pilots of RAF 2000s. Pilots of RAF 2000s are very good pilots. Right. You know, it's a bit like you know Harrier pilots. I hate to admit it, but you know, yeah. back in the day before it got easy, Harrier pilots were probably quite yeah. good pilots. So. And uh, I, I flew with the, the company test pilot in Canada. He had a 1,000 hours on the RF-2000 and had flown nothing else. So when I say to him, you know, this is a death trap, <laughs> he goes, no, it's not. Because he's no, flown nothing yeah. else. He doesn't know anything yeah. else. Um, but that was a helicopter that um, it broke all the rules for civil certification. It, it clearly didn't meet any normal civil standards for a safe aircraft to fly. Um, we worked, you know, really quite closely with um, the sort of the recreational organisations that looked after all the jars at the time and, and the owners and people like that. And, and over a period, we, we managed to get the aircraft redesigned. We got a, a tail made. In fact, the, the guy that the guy that came up with this was uh, a guy I, I know because he's a mate of my brother's. So, you know, it's a very small yeah. world. But he came up with a, a modification to the aircraft. And it made it better to fly. It, get, it made it better to fly to the point where we, I was then working for Civil Aviation Authority as a regulator, so I could say, it's not easy to fly, but it's acceptable. It's okay. It's safe. You know, it's not fun necessarily, but it's safe. So I, I would count that as one of the more difficult aircraft. Um, again, if you read my book, I, I mention um, a Polish helicopter quite a lot. Um, it's called the PZL SW4. It was basically designed by this company. The company, um, you know, in previous years had built Soviet helicopters under license. That's what they'd done. Uh, just before the um, the wall came down, they'd started to think ahead because they could see the writing on the wall, and they decided to build effectively a scaled down squirrel helicopter. I mean, it looked a bit like a squirrel helicopter that you've kind of shrunk okay. on your um, CAD or something. Yeah. So, uh, but it wasn't very nice to fly. It, it it was underpowered. It had very poor handling qualities. Had very low rotor inertia, so it was very difficult to land following an engine failure. And I ended up doing several, you know, week or two week sessions on that aircraft, uh, culminating in two weeks in Arizona. As, as you will know, helicopters don't like thin air; they don't like yeah. high density altitudes. And we were doing engine off landings at seven thousand, nine thousand feet, um, which is very much yeah would scare air. the life out of me. Particular helicopter. <laughs> It was very that was that was scary yeah. stuff. Yeah, it was actually scary stuff. Um, so I would I would cite those as probably amongst the more 
challenge yeah. you have to have to deal with. And, and I think in the snippet that I read in the book or, or, or an excerpt from the book, you, you mentioned spinning, um, something that something yeah. that uh, has always kind of fascinated me a little bit and terrified me at the same time. Uh, obviously, I've been subject when I did my PPL years ago. Spinning was still in the syllabus. And, I, and I, I was on the very first Takano course, which involved inverted spinning, um, which is possibly right. one of the most frightening moments of my life. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, I can imagine. Have you, do, do you have anything in particular to say about spinning in test flying? Because <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing that there must be something about if you're testing an aircraft and to spin it. I've done a shed load of spinning. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, spin, I mean, uh, you know, I... I think one of the, I think I say in my book something along the lines of, um, you know, aircraft that crash. If if the engine hasn't stopped, or the pilot hasn't, you know, done a sort of controlled flight into terrain due to poor weather. But you know, the third most sort of common cause of an, of an aeroplane hitting the ground is because it's entered a spin, um, and, and which is a shame. And it, it often happens to pilots, you know, on on final or shortly after takeoff, where they're not yet in the groove um they might not be fully you know aware of what's going on and and they spin to the ground um civil certification wise modern airplanes that um we get into uh, are all designed to have um benign spin recovery characteristics and and, and that's what i've spent a lot of time doing. so i get invited to um go and go and fly an airplane and enter a spin and see if I can recover. And having entered that spin and recovered, I do it again and again and again and again and again for hours and hours and hours because I do every single which way you can enter a spin, every single which way you can recover from a spin. I do it with all states of flap, undercarriage up, undercarriage down, air brakes in, air brakes out, with power, with some power, with no power, etc. So so a, a spinning um, spin test campaign can take you know days. Um, and I do that for the airplanes that are cleared to spin. So I do that, you know, for aerobatic airplanes that are, are, are designed to be able to spin and recover from the spin. But I also have to do that for all the other airplanes out there that are designed not. Yeah, to that's the ones I'm interested even in. Those airplanes, <laughs> yeah, even those airplanes might enter a spin by accident because you know the pilot that's entered a spin by accident didn't know he was going to enter a spin. You know, so. So all of the, the certification requirements are that those aircraft should recover from a single turn spin in a, in a single further turn. So it's, it's basically along the lines of a pilot gets too slow, something bad happens, the wing drops, it enters a spin. As long as he knows what to do, he should be able to recover that aeroplane within one further turn. And that, and that should be it. And therefore, we should only lose two, three, four hundred feet. Maybe certainly the microlights will only tend to lose that kind of height. And therefore, if it happens to him at a thousand feet in the circuit, it's a survivable mm-hmm. thing. Um, training is one aspect we, you know, we, we, we actually dwell on. But from my point of view of testing the aeroplane, I'm testing to make sure that aeroplane, you know, in the right hands for somebody that knew what was going on, should be able to recover it. And again, I do it with you know power, without power, flaps, etc., etc., etc. And 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 it is it is challenging. Um, so one of the stories in my book um, is I did uh, some microlights. Uh, there's a certification requirement, and in the book, when he gets to spinning, uh, it's almost like a sort of folksy kind of notes to make. <laughs> and everything else is done really well, 
and it gets to the spinning paragraph and then it goes you know micro lights shouldn't be spun you know basically yeah. but if you want to spin your micro light contact the CEO that's almost exactly yeah. what and uh, most people don't want to spin it no. you know why would you uh, but an um, import of the C42 back in the, the day uh, C42 nice little micro light high wing um, joystick in the middle very popular with the training schools nice airplane nothing nothing wrong with it uh, but this guy goes uh, contact the CEA we want to spin this airplane okay fine so off I go to spin this airplane um, the first the first flight I go and spin the airplane I do all the right things which basically means having entered the spin you apply opposite rudder you're trying to stop the yaw of the airplane as I fed in rudder this thing was going around it was going around at you know I don't know how many turns a second? I mean, it was going around like a spinning top. In my in my book, I think I talk about it like a tumble drop. Yeah. You know, it was it was going around fast. As soon as I put the rudder in, it stopped. Bang! In an instant. I mean, it really went bang. Everything about the airframe went bang. And I thought, that's not good. You know, I've never I've never stopped a spin that quickly. Yeah. Most of the time, you're feeding the rudder, it wallows around a bit, and eventually it sorts itself out and you recover. This thing went bang. So I did it again, the same thing happened. I'm not happy with this. I go back back down to the ground, talk to the guys on the ground, talk to their structural guy, and I go, so I've just done this, this is what happened. Is your airframe, is your aircraft strong enough to cope with these loads? And I look at this bloke, and this is a sort of um, an expression I've now seen scores of scores of times. <laughs> it's that sort of blank look, <laughs> like you're staring into the abyss. You know, you're not getting that positive vibe that you want to get, you know, because what you want him to say is absolutely, it's fine. He goes, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's quite scary. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think uh, you know, we talk about scary things. Quite often for me, I'm scared after yes. the event when I realise potentially how close I was yeah. to, you know, maybe not making it. But at the time, I'm too busy to give it too much thought. And this is one of those examples. So... Anyway, we, we lots of discussions with experts at the CEA, um, internal company experts. I didn't know at the time, lots of people listening to this will know that aluminium bends in a kind of linear fashion. It's not like a composite that, that, that snaps. Aluminium bends. And you by, by working out how much it's bent, you can work out how much load has been applied and how close it is to breaking. Okay. So what we did was we put cameras on the airplane. We went and did it all again. We saw exactly how much bending we'd introduced to the airframe, came back down, had it analysed by experts, and this thing was built like the proverb. Okay. It was a very strong, well-made airframe, so that yeah. was fine. Great. Off we go again, back to spin, 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 spin. Most of the spinning went fine. Then, then I start to go through what we call the abuse cases. So now I'm spinning with an inadvertent amount of aileron or an inadvertent amount of this. Every time I did one of those spins, the engine stopped. And fly along, spin, 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 good dunk. And if you know, if, if some of your listeners have got a Rotax, oh the yeah, Rotax doesn't no, stop like no, every other end. It stops like it's seized. It, it, yeah, it stops like yeah. it's seized every single yeah. time. So you know, you go da, 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 spin, 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 good dunk, and it would just literally stop. The propeller would just stop in an instant. And you go, well, that's not clever. You know, and the first time it happened, you know, I point to where I park my car. I'm in a glider again. Very used to gliding airplanes now. <laughs> I had 17 plus engine failures, so I'm quite used to what to do. And but the, you know, the nice thing about the Rotax is, you know, you press the button, and it and each time this happened, it started. Mm -hmm. But it happened scores and scores of times. And, I, and then I was faced with 
uh, you know, back at my desk at the CEA going, you know, yes, this aircraft recovers from a spin every time, but a lot of the time the engine stops. Now, you know, I'm used to that. I just deal with that. Can we certify for the general public an aeroplane where we know that most of the time the engine is going to stop? And guess what? The answer yeah. is no. You know, we do not want a PPL holder going off on his own at 2,000 feet finding he hasn't got an engine because the CEA said it was safe. So we had to say, I'm terribly sorry, but we're not going to clear this airplane spin. Which, you know, which, which was a shame, but uh, it was the right Sounds answer. reasonable to me. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, a, a C-42, I, I'm not sure if I want to spin one anyway, despite your wholesome testing. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think uh, but, they're okay. I, I, I have a lot of time for the C42, and I did some testing of the latest version only, only last year out in Norfolk. And, um, you know, I wouldn't want to deter people from the C42. If, if I'm a, a normal spin recovery, if I'm a one turn yeah. spin, it recovered every single time. Yeah. I, I, I would consider it quite a safe. Device. And this is people doing intentional spinning as well, because the likelihood is, as you said, I think at the start, you know, that most people who store incipient spin spin do it at a fairly low level and it's it's a little bit inconsequential yes. whether the yes. engine stopped or, or or not really in that situation yes so, yeah it's yes. amazing yes. yeah it's really it's really interesting and, and you 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 imagine spinning you know as you say aerobatic aircraft stuff that is designed to spin but it's a whole different kettle of fish when you're in stuff when you look at look at a micro light and go right i'm going to spin this um to, yes. to me that's that's yes. where you earn that's where you earn your money chris well, and, and, and I, you know, I do all the right things. Yeah. I wear a parachute, I, I wear my helmet, um, and uh, you know, I try and make sure that I'm going to be able to get the door open, which is a challenge, yeah. as you can imagine. Because when you're going round and round in circles, if you can't get out of the airplane, there's no point in having a parachute on your back. You know, you're, you're stuck there. So, uh, um, and, and I, I, I mentioned in the book that I did fly a micro light, where it took a long time to come out of the spin. Uh, you know, and I was starting to think about out. <laughs> you know, at what point do I need to jump out? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it did it did come good in the end. That's really good. And do you do you fly for fun at all now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, uh, I have a share in a Eurostar okay. Microlite. Uh, I have a, a small share in that, and I I bought that um, predominantly to be able to fly myself to work because obviously most of my work is at other airfields. Yeah. Uh, invariably GA airfields um, and unfortunately my, my local airfield closed so that's it's not quite as convenient and I have flown my children in it I've flown my wife in it um, it's a nice little aeroplane but the, the problem I have um, and, and I again I mentioned this in the book that, 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 that uh, I am because of the nature of the, the job I have I'm constantly thinking of the worst possible <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that's just been a test pilot though I think that's probably something to do with <laughs> a helicopter pilot as well because I've spoken about well, I've spoken about before I think we're all quite pessimists yeah. when it comes to that because I think yeah, so helicopter flying is quite often sitting there waiting for it to go wrong I mean not so much it is not so much not yeah. so much these days yeah. but uh, you know certainly the thing I, I still fly you know, incredibly and reliable uh, and and uh, it doesn't miss a beat. But I certainly, yeah, in my early days, I think most helicopter pilots. I think you know they, there is there's cartoons about it, isn't there? Uh, that yeah. helicopter yeah. pilots are just sitting yeah. there waiting for something to happen. If it hasn't happened, yeah. it's about yeah. to. <laughs> I I I I, uh, I I must I must stop saying it. I say in my book, but I say one one of the one of the jobs I ended up doing was test flying a Spitfire. Um, wow. 
it was a two-seat Spitfire. I was flying it with another guy. And I, I don't know about you, but I talk about those hairs on the back of my neck because I think helicopter pilots get those hairs on the back of the neck very finely tuned <laughs> to be a clue yeah. that something's Normally a noise. Right. And it's just, just you, know, you just feel that something's not right. And we were diving the Spitfire. I was flying. The guy in the front was telling me to go faster. We had to reach a certain speed. And those hairs on the back of my neck were, were, were going, mm, you know, there's something not right about this. And to cut a long story short, I knocked it off. We went back uh, to the airfield we started from. I got a, a lot of grief from the other pilot, the engineers. It turns out there was a faulty pressure error system. We were flying a lot faster oh, right. than the SPD yeah. indicator. It said we would, have, we would have ripped the wings off. There is no doubt. Yeah. You know, had we carried on to the public speed, we would have done the aircraft a lot of damage and, and we may not have walked home. So, um, yeah, so helicopter pilots are like that. And, and, and I think if you're doing flight tests, you know, we spend a lot of our time, um, you know, I'm always looking for fields to land mm. on, you know, always, always, always. You know, I, when I'm flying along, um, you know, if I'm flying at 2,000 feet, I'm wondering why I'm not at three. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I'm at three, why am I not at five? You know, am I in the best possible height, environment, speed to cope with the engine failure or whatever else might yeah. be? You know, which means that the, you can, it does take a tinge of fun away. But on the other hand, I'm still here I, to tell I, the tale. I totally, so it's a, it's, a it's funny, I totally get that because I went back to fixed wing flying, oh, I can't remember how many years ago now, but, uh, you know, whatever it was. Um, five six years ago and uh, you know I fly my own little aircraft and my attitude is really different to a lot of the PPL flyers who who I think have far more fun than I do um, because I, I fly a little single seat aircraft it's high performance uh, you know it's a tail wheel so it's 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 got it's you know it's a great little aircraft and it's it's not that difficult to fly but it does have little traps um, and particularly the landing yeah. you know the, your whole flight is based and like yeah. any tail is based around what you're going to do at the end <laughs> um, yeah. and knowing if you're going to be able to yeah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well the last time was just luck um but yeah i, I that, that it really resonates with me with that because i fly and i'm constantly thinking what happens if the engine stops what happens here? And, I, and I, I've wrote, yeah. I, I've written a, a, yeah. a small ebook about it actually, which I kind of give away, uh, um, and I call it the doubt monster, um, because I always say that there's someone on my shoulder. It's the doubt monster. Is when the engine's going to stop. It's not. It's not if it's going to stop. It's just when it will. That moment it will happen. Um, and uh, and and I think yeah. I and I speak to I speak to friends and mates that I fly with. You know, have not come from a similar background. And they go, oh, I don't really worry about that at all. You know, I, you know, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it when it comes. Um, and and yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally different. I, but it's too it's late. Too, <laughs> it's too late. To yeah. I, 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 I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not, I'm not competent yeah. enough to just deal with the scenario thrown at me completely without any warning yeah. at all. You know, so, uh, you know, if you, if, if you just fly me around in the blindfold, take the blindfold off with an engine fan and go pick a field, I'll dither, yeah. you know what I mean? I'll go, Ugh, I don't know, oh, there's a yellow one there, there's a green one there, a brown one, or brown, brown's muddy, or oh, yellow's red, choice. that's bad. Is, is green better than brown? Yeah. You know, I mean, you know what I mean? So, so instead, I spend most of my time, you know, I mean, not all no. the time, I'm, I'm checking the temperatures and pressures every now and again and the fuel gauges, but every now and again, I just look around my environment and go, where's the wind? You know, where would I go if the engine stopped now? Which fuel would yeah. I end? And, and I've had a lot of engine failures, um, lots and lots and lots, and uh, you know, lots in autogyros, um, and I've still been caught out, but generally speaking, uh, up until now, when an engine has failed, I've already 
got an idea of what I'm going to yeah. do next. Otherwise, you know, I mean, I've, I've got 8,000 flying hours, you know, 40 odd years of flying experience. I, I still couldn't cope with just being, you know, doorstep with a new scenario because it's too difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's just too, you know, uh, it, it, so you, I think if you're not preempting and planning a little bit ahead, um, you could I think it's really good advice Chris it is really good advice and it shouldn't spoil it shouldn't spoil your flying but it is it is excellent advice and it's particularly you know up here where, where I live up in in Scotland you know there aren't a lot of flat places either uh, and people forget that you, uh, you know if you fly in Norfolk when I, I've taken my aircraft down there and you go oh I'm, I'm having the same thoughts you know and as you said you're spoiled for choice yeah. do I go for the yellow weight field or do I go for the brown field or do I go for the green <laughs> field you know oh I won't select that one because it's got wires in but because up here quite a lot of the time you know it's a calculated risk you know we, we fly you know we fly yeah. over the mountains to get to places and, and you're looking in valley bottoms and, and thinking or yeah. that or looking at that lock thinking how cold is that going to be you know <laughs> and yeah, those yeah, were yeah, my thoughts yeah. generally if i survive if i survive if i survive the ditching am i am i just going to die of hypothermia straight away uh, especially coming from a search and rescue background but it's it's really really good advice uh, and as you say there's a got, test pilot you've got some ideas. there's a test pilot telling us that say you know you you won't you don't want the surprise you you don't have even 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 a test pilot's not going to have the not going to have the skills to suddenly yeah. go right i've not even thought about this and here it's here it's happening to me you know it's it's good yeah. stuff yeah. so uh, one of the one of the ones I wanted to ask you, I've asked you which one scared you the most, which one worried you the most, and we've talked about spinning and all the difficult things. Do you have a favourite? <laughs> well, well, I I I just started putting some of these question and answers on a on a uh, my book's pen and sword, and they've got a blog. I, I don't know what a blog is. <laughs> I'm the wrong age, but, but but apparently there's a blog with my oh, okay. name on it. And um, the question I answered last week. Um, was what is my favourite helicopter, mm-hmm. and and the question I'm going to answer next week is what. Oh, I don't want to spoil it then, <laughs> because I sort of split. Yeah. I thought I better split the two out. Um, and for helicopters, what I said was, uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about the Wasp and Lynx. So, I mean, most most military pilots, generally speaking, I think your first operational type always has a you know a sort of soft place in your heart, doesn't it? You and in fact, when, when I was working for the CEA, I tested for a number of Wasp helicopters again. Um, I realised as a test pilot flying the Wasp how bloody difficult yeah. it actually was to fly. You know, and I, I, I was kind of awestruck about my sort of twenty-something self that used to fly that same helicopter on dark, stormy, crappy nights onto the back of Type Ignorance is bliss, you know, Chris. I mean, a very demanding <laughs> Ignorance Sorry. is bliss, and there's a lot of. Well, it was. Absolutely. There's a lot of twenty. Absolutely. There's a lot of twenty-somethings that have done similar things, and then, as you say, you look uh, back uh, and you uh, go, uh, "Did we? Did we really yeah. do that?" Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But you are absolutely. immortal when so, you're 20, you know, so it's fine. <laughs> it's a difficult, difficult aircraft to fly. Poor instruments, poor props, and uh, and obviously the Lynx, as I've already said, very capable in comparison. A um, couple, couple of other types that uh, are worth mentioning. I think, in some ways, the most awesome helicopter I've had the privilege to fly was the um, twin-engine Cobra, the Whiskey Cobra H1W Cobra. I, I flew that out in. Uh, the states of the test pilot school there did an assessment of it. Uh, you, you know, 190 knots. You know, pretending to be a Vietnam pilot <laughs> firing my rockets and all that stuff. I mean, really, uh, that was a lot yeah. of fun. You know, there's no doubt about it. It was a real blast to do that. Um, so I think that probably counts as one of the more awesome aircraft. Uh, CH-53, 
just massive amounts of power. You know, in, again, in almost carefree handling at lightweight. I mean, it's got to, you know, it can carry more than a Chinook, I think. Um, that, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I, I really quite like flying the jet range. I'm still qualified on the jet range now. I teach on it, examine on it. And the jet range is one of those um, aircraft. It's, it's a, I call it a low gain aircraft. You have to sort of sit in it, pretend you're smoking weed, you know, really chilled out. <laughs> you know, there's, there's absolutely no and point in thrashing the controls please, around. For my podcast, you know. so please don't do that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't smoke weed and no. then go flying. But it's, it's a sort of low gain, chilled out airplane. You know, you can't, uh, uh, you can't do anything aggressively. But it, you know, if you look at all the movies with helicopters in, ninety percent of them feature jet range. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about it's fly around in them, and it's it's actually quite. It does everything a helicopter can do. And if you're going to have an engine failure in a helicopter, a jet range is not a bad one to do. It's got very good inertia. It's very easy to do an engine off landing. Uh, but ironically, the, for me, and I think we share this, the, the the aircraft I say, the helicopter I say is my favourite is the Wessex. Um, and I missed my chance to fly the Wessex as a Navy pilot proper because when I, when I got my wings, there was a little list came out and it said, what do you want to fly? And of course said the Wasp. And I was lucky enough to get the one yeah. slot. My second choice was was, uh, was Wessex. But by the time I'd finished flying the Wasp, the Navy had pensioned off the Wessex, which was, a, which was very sad. But fortunately for me, um, RE Bedford and Boscombe Down each had a Wessex helicopter. One was a, an Air Force Mark II, one was a Navy Mark V, and I found myself the Wessex expert. I was the last project pilot for the Wessex. Um, and, I, and I loved the Wessex. I mean, I loved its undercarriage, I loved its big wheels, I loved the ability to plonk it on the ground using the tail yeah. wheel first. I loved the fact that it basically had, it only needed one engine and they gave you two. You know, you could fly around on one engine and hardly notice that you'd missed the second one. A lovely big collective lever with a nice wooden handle on the yeah, end of the it. piece of wood and in it the Wessex. massive yeah. sliding door. <laughs> yeah, it's massive, massive sliding door so you could lean out and get some fresh air. Um, and I did some really interesting trials in the Wessex. I ended up landing on the back of a Type 23 frigate. Um, it's some very nasty weather. The Wessex barely fits on a frigate. It's it's the wrong size. The, the tail wheels down the back. The, um, the the gearbox is a long way forward. So it's actually quite a long helicopter. Um, but I, th I, th I think the Wessex was a lot of fun to fly. Um, so I, I I decided ultimately that's my favourite. Um, when it comes to aeroplanes, I'm, uh, that's my that's what I'm going to write next week. But. Yeah, I, please don't, please don't, please, please don't give anything away for your publisher. I don't want to get in trouble. Well, I, 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 I'm working out what it's going to be. I have yeah. soft spot for the hawk. I, I flew the hawk a few times, as you know, at Boscombe. I thought it was just lovely to be up at you know thirty thousand feet above all the cloud, you know, doing what the red arrows do. I mean, it's just a nice, fun aeroplane, really easy to fly. I think difficult to difficult to keep straight on the ground, but easy to fly um, I liked flying the chipmunk that's definitely one of my favourites I did a lot of chipmunk time uh, during university flying navy chipmunks took them to France pretending to be a typhoon pilot flying between trees <laughs> in the south of France you know a lot of fun um, you know you, yeah chipmunks are a little fighter airplane uh, I had a chance to fly the sea fury that was a huge amount of fun it flew, it flew a lot like a chipmunk but on steroids um, and obviously for a fleet air arm pilot, for me that was, you know, the swordfish and the sea fury are possibly the, the, the Navy's most iconic yeah. aircraft types. Um, so I'm dithering okay. over which is my favourite, but I, I, I've got a short list of well, half a dozen we will, for sure. We so. will, uh, uh, in the show notes, we'll put a link to the blog so people can find out which one, oh, which right, one it good. is. Okay. So my last question that I ask everybody, 
and you can answer this any which way you like. It doesn't have to be in aviation terms, it can be in the world view, is what do you think the world will look like in five years' time? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a, I saw that on your <laughs> proposed list of questions and I thought maybe we run out of time before we get to that. No. <laughs> I think it's a phen phenomenally difficult yeah. question. I mean, who knew, you know, if you'd asked that question five years ago, who knew what we as a world would have gone through? You know, I mean, climate change, you know, that in the last five years has been a massive acceptance of that. Um, but obviously COVID and then the war in, in, in Europe, Ukraine. Uh, I mean, you would never really have guessed five years ago, would you, that Russia would invade you? Yeah. I mean, it just seemed nonsensical in 2022 to be, you know, restarting World War II. It, it just seems absolutely crazy. I, I, I don't know what the next five years looks like. I think the world is going to... I don't think a lot of people in the world uh, have... You know, the penny hasn't dropped. I mean, it's the council elections today as we fill the mm -hmm. uh, You know, a lot of media are saying people are upset about the cost of living in the hope that Boris Johnson and the cabinet have got a magic wand. There is no money. No. You know, there is the, the, the money from the UK was all spent on COVID and everybody thought that was a good idea at the time. We borrowed incredibly um, and the interest rates are now going up. So, you know, not only do we owe a lot of money, servicing the debt is going to take up yeah. whatever spare cash you've got. I think the other parties, politicians who have got deep answers re really aren't being truthful. Uh, I think it's going to be very tough. And, you know, we as a nation have to be very cognizant and supportive of, you know, those in Germany that will not have enough gas for their industry yeah. and their heating. Because if we don't, if we don't stop buying Russian gas, that's not going to be good. So, it's a really different world now to even, you know, three months ago, yeah. four months ago. And I think, I think um, and it's, a, it's a good answer, Chris, and, and without getting delving too deep into politics, because uh, I think we all see enough of that. But uh, I, I feel for our kids, I feel for our teenagers. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, everyone's, every generation says, you know, we had the best of it. Um, I think at the moment for them, and I look at it from a, an aviation point of view, so I'm very keen on getting youngsters into aviation. Um, that it, it's not an easy it's not an easy world to be living in it's some of it some of it is you know but but the other parts are not and I think in the next five years as you said it will be fascinating to see how that turns out uh, and and uh, and I yeah. think our kids would need to be extra resilient to get through it uh, and that that's the stuff that yeah. you know we're, we're at the other end <laughs> we're not hopefully we're not close to the, yeah. the pushing up the daisies but yeah. but yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's our kids that uh, I, I really feel for and in terms of aviation again as well you look we've discussed your, your your fantastic background I was incredibly lucky you know and luck does come into this a lot as well and the and the opportunities yeah. Yeah. that were presented to us and with no guilt there was no guilt yeah. there was no guilt about burning thousands of gallons of jet a1 and avgas uh, uh, there was no worry about the no one no one was worried about climate change or the planet or or what the potential consequences of what we did were so yeah it's really interesting it's a different yeah. world Chris, yeah and you're absolutely, absolutely Chris, right. it's been it's been fascinating give me one more reminder the book is called test pilot and the subtitle test pilot an extraordinary career testing civil Brilliant. it's available all the usual outlets amazon waterstone smiths uh pen and sword publish it you can get it from there 
but it's 18 quid on Amazon. Leave me a five star review. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put it. We'll put it. We'll put it in the show notes. And thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. And I think, as well, I'd like to get you back on and perhaps for the third book because I think there's so many more stories there to tell. Oh, uh, there's there's lots more. Lots more to talk about. Thanks, Chris. Thanks go to Chris for such an interesting and informative dive into the world of both military and civilian test flying. Chris's book is now available to buy on Amazon and at other outlets. We've put some links in the show notes to help you go grab your copy. If you or your business would like to appear on the Busy Aviation podcast, please do get in touch through our website, which can be found at www.busyaviation.co.uk. You'll also find our latest news, articles, and other episodes of this podcast. Please take a moment to sign up for our newsletter. And in the meantime, safe flying and happy landings.